Boop. 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 Jose Rogan. Rogan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm devastated. And I am appalled. <laughs> We're the Doddlers. Here on the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. Oh, yeah. Once again. <laughs> oh, so. We're just trying to make you all feel at home, right? Because everybody that you listen to nowadays is maxed out on whatever emotional scale they operate on. Uh, yeah, that is it. I'm yeah, this disgusted is like... by, oh, this is, you know, everything is extreme. <sighs> it is very extreme and it you know it's it's funny i don't know if it's getting worse and i'm adjusting but it just gets worse or if i just can't seem to keep up with how uh horrible everything is all the time and and so i'm just you know in the morning i'm like you know mornings can be difficult (laughs) (laughs) but any you know we just did the facetious version but i'm harland Oh, and I'm Ryan. Yeah, now we got that codified, too. And we're still the Doddlers. Still Doddlers. Yes, yeah, so we're... But we're are there. we, though? We Are we still <laughs> no. the Doddlers, or are the Doddlers changing already? Uh, uh, I was surprised explain. to hear the proposed topic for this session. Oh, yes. Well, I, I guess we're the, you know... Well... It, this is an old standby. This is like a latent topic through me, I suppose. Um, and the topic, in short, I guess you could say, is climate and climate change. Oh, fucking climate. Something. Yeah. I mean, that's fun. I'm ready to go. I get to have an easy one this time. I don't even have any papers laid out in front of me. <laughs> uh, I yeah. get to turn my lamp off. Oh, man. Crack the beers. <laughs> I don't have any responsibility because I don't know a damn thing about this topic. I am here to learn. Uh, uh, yes, and I and I know maybe too much. We'll find out. Uh, yeah. It's not that I am opposed to learning about this. It's not that I don't think it's important. It's that when... I attempt to dig into it, be it on YouTube or on Bill Maher or in some article linked on Twitter, whatever it is. I have a hard time taking seriously and listening to most of the people, the high results in the search, whatever. Yeah, I I type it in and I come back and get some PragerU video or some other... All the sources are so biased, so polluted, so uh, engaging in various types of bias and motivated reasoning, and everybody's got their tribe, and it's all polluted with politics, and it's... I have a hard time finding the good stuff. Well, you've come to the right place. No. (laughs) Um... Yeah, no, it's tough because, you know, uh, it, it there's that whole discussion um, with those IDW people. And I'm sure with many others, it's just that they seem to be talking about it most frequently. 
um, that I encounter it with them the most. But the whole long-form discussion thing, I mean, we even kind of, to an extent, anyone actually notices, uh, we advertise ourselves more or less in this way, like long-form discussion podcast on ideas. And, you know, um, it's one of those things where with the short form, you know, the people get maybe just a few moments to say something. And of course they, they give everybody a, a say and usually it's just, you know, political and everybody's angry in one way, form or another, or there's some nanny poo poo thing going on. Um, and then of course that helps with the ratings, I suppose, you know, um, <clears throat> I think it's to their advantage, Bill Maher, whoever, to have people who want to fight on their show so that, uh, you know, anyone watching can be a little on the edge of their seat and all that crap. So, but yeah. then, yeah. The, and that they have to have their polished, prepared, tight five because they know that in that medium, they're only going to be able to engage at a certain level. But yet yeah. that's what most of us get most of the time on most topics, except those that we really care about and go pick up 400-page books about and dive into the journal <laughs> yeah. articles and stuff on emergence because we love it. And climate, we're like, I don't have time for this and I don't really care. So I'll just get the Neil deGrasse Tyson on Larry King version. And, you know, that's all I get. Yeah, that's, 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 um, that's too bad because the obviously I think this topic could you know, I, I think it does many things uh, outside of even just the political realm. It, it, it would be a great way for people to kind of have a good sense for kind of what a community of scientists do and how they how they operate, how they um, come to agreement, how they come to include each other if they haven't been including each other in some, you know, you know, the far reaches of some particular topic area. Um, like, you know, maybe, you know, climate modelers are like, oh, yeah, I'll include biology. Or or maybe they'd be like, oh, yeah, we should probably include those massive ice sheets in the poles. Um, you know, things like that, that, you know, it's it's a it's an interesting um, uh, community for that reason. And, of course, it's always a hot topic because... It's, you know, actively happening or whatever. And, and it has high stakes, or so some tell me. This is right. the end of the world. Yeah, well, the end of things as we... The end of humanity, I suppose. Most people think the Earth will still be around. But George Carlin certainly did. Um, yeah, and there was another place where you get your your climate science, George Carlin, you know. Or your earth science or something like that. It's uh, yeah, know, a couple of beers we circling the drain 30 years ago. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, but anyway, uh, yes, I like that we get to do, we're going to go for a long time, and it's coming from a couple of dawdlers who are unaffiliated with any of this. It's like there's no institution, there's no whatever. I don't know. I like that about us. Uh, and here I am advertising. All right, whatever. Uh, I get I got a source now. I can learn about climate change from someone that at least I am willing to trust is unbiased 
entirely in the ways that I <laughs> most find most distasteful. Nice. So what well, do I need to know? What is what's the deal? They tell me. All right. I initial question. Yeah. Maybe you'll throw the whole thing off. Well, whatever. <laughs> then I won't be uh, up to uh, the task anymore. And I, can I am told <laughs> that this issue is. Some people tell me this issue is settled. There is a scientific consensus. Ninety x <laughs> percent of scientists believe or have evidence that anthropogenic climate change is happening, has been happening for at least, what, 50 to 200 years, and that it will alter things so significantly that major consequences, cities will flood, ecosystems will alter, things will go extinct, perhaps humanity itself is in danger. Other people tell me, well, it's a debate. <laughs> What's the right answer to all of that? I, I would say it's closer to the 90x percent or whatever, um, uh, because I think for the reason that, you know, many people contribute to climate change uh, research, you know, whether they're studying, you know, the the atmosphere or the oceans or whatever directly as physical and chemical uh, subjects, but they also study them, you know, biologically. And um, so you have all these various people coming at the problem from various different angles, and they're all poking their heads up from their cubicles and going, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is changing. And someone can be like, oh, it's changing over here too, you know. And so it seems sort of like a a blind consilience of inductions on one thing, you know. Um, and, you know, it's not that people are, you know, just kind of coming into this idea now, you know. So that's the other thing. It's been, you know, there have been people talking about this stuff for a while. And um, I don't know about that number. I love that. It's hilarious. That is, there's that one. Uh, the, people love their 90-something percent. There's that one, and there's also the one that's like all, you know, like 99% of all, you know, species are now extinct or whatever. You know, like there's always those like uh, journalistic things that people like to throw out there. I don't know. No, like in any of my classes, no one ever like – no climate scientist ever said that in a in a lecture. You know what I mean? So it's, I sh I don't know. Like I don't know. You know I oh, guess okay. That's... So this that little tidbit, that fact, only right. occurs in popular media, and Pretty it's not much. a meme in the scientific community so much. Well, I, as far as my experience goes, maybe other people in other earth science departments when they're going to college or whatever. No, that, that is something they definitely encounter, but I never had like any of my professors could walk in the room and be like 99% of my friends agree with me. You know, like it's just not the thing. Usually it's like, Oh crap, we have the syllabus and we have to do this work. Um, but I want to kind of step, step back a, a little bit from climate because climate, we we're isolating it and I think we'll get to it. Um, but I, I do kind of want to lead up to it a little bit. Because other, you know, it, you know, climate is part of Earth in terms of, you know, processes happening at its surface, but you know, the factors related to it 
you know, are, you know, you know, beyond the Earth's atmosphere uh, in both the direction towards, you know, outer space and then the direction towards, you know, the interior of the Earth itself. So Earth and maybe even beyond that, to some extent, there's a solar system uh, aspect that that, you know, climate is related to uh, in a somewhat direct, uh, you know, uh, way in which you can kind of, you know, atomize it and, and study the parts and things like that and be productive. Uh, so the one thing I do want to kind of say, though, first off, is that I kind of the thing I want to put out there is that Earth is a system. You know, we can kind of think of it in that way as a whole, you know, little system. And of course, it's part of other systems itself. But that within that system, there are components to that system. There are subsystems. And we often call these components at certain levels of explanation or description. We call them, say, spheres. You know, we have the atmosphere and, you know, we have the lithosphere, a sphere, And, you know, we, we also like to throw around things like the Twitter sphere and stuff. But, um, you know, but... Nonetheless, we have these basic components that are, you know, this system is comprised of. And, um, you know, they, of course, interact. So it's kind of a way for us to kind of conceptualize and to be able to, uh, you know, work with the various areas of the Earth that we think kind of are contiguous with one another, but we know that they're also quite interactive with other aspects. So the Earth is a system and has these spheres and they interact and how they interact is through what you might call cycles, you know, like you've got the, uh, you know, the cycles, probably most people, if they're paying attention, even in like their high school physics and chemistry classes or, or even biology, they'll see, you know, there's like the rock cycle and, you know, um, the water cycle and things like that. And even at a smaller level, we'll talk about like elements, like, you know, the carbon cycle and, um, is this These, like the kind of like the crab cycle where certain people will get kind of angry periodically? I wish. Um but but it isn't as interesting as that because I've never heard of that. No, that was a crab cycle joke. All right, carry on. Oh, for crying out. Is it because their metabolism they need to eat? Yikes. Anyway, uh you can tell like I'm all like, "Do this right, Ryan. Do this right." <laughs> Um, don't fuck up. The pressure is on. 1.5 yes. people might hear you. Maybe 0.5, but the one person definitely will. Um, so anyway, so you've got cycles. So, you, so, um, okay. So, and you're saying yeah. that that's what can tie these different systems together because you've got your medium, like the water or whatever, and it goes through various phases and that ties together the atmosphere and the oceans because something cycles betwixt them. Is that the point? Yeah. I mean, but there are all of course ways in which we conceptualize the process of exchange of, you know, anything, you know, and we then can say, well, this is, uh, you know, going to be an important factor in determining this outcome, you know, for, you know, various reasons, et cetera. And, you know, so, um, it allows us to kind of keep track of all the things that are happening on Earth that affect, you know, day-to-day -day activities as well as, you know, millennium-to-millennium -millennium activities. Uh, 
so you know we are a civilization and that seems to be something you know where we live on earth is pretty concerning to us especially now as we get better and better at seeing ourselves or putting ourselves in a in newer and newer perspectives um and so yes that's the part of it and then of course so you can have these cycles and the cycles then in addition to having the exchanges that they do they are feedbacks you know and that's another important component and there's two kinds of feedbacks one is a positive feedback and the other is a negative feedback so positive feedback would be like if you had a mic that you that you had uh that you put in front of an amplifier at a rock concert and the microphone uh is playing that over much larger speakers to get to the people all the way in the back of the stadium or wherever they are and um somehow maybe that sound from that speaker gets picked up by the mic and then it gets, you know, transferred out and you, you know, blare that out through the speaker. And then that comes back into the mic and you have this accelerating feedback that goes, you know, that's a positive feedback that, um, is essentially you have this, this, this little bit of a change or something and it accelerates the change or increases the change and pushes it further and further into you know what it was so where you start you end up in a very different place and then you got negative feedbacks like homeostasis you know you get hot your internal temperature is hot you know too high or whatever and you sweat and that sweat like the evapor you know provides evaporative cooling properties and then you cool down so you, your temperature is maintained at least in in that way um so there's these feedbacks and whatnot so that's kind of something to just keep in mind this is Earth is just this system, and it's got a whole bunch of different components, shit ton of stuff happening all at the same time, or you know, and you know, roughly, and um, you know, every once in a while a big rock comes and hits it and kills everything. But for the most part, it's a you know high functioning entity um, of interesting uh, characteristics and stuff, and we love it because we live here. So you can uh, kind of look at, is there anything to be gained from interpreting the Earth similarly to how one might interpret a human body or other living organism? That there's gross yeah. reasons to draw a boundary here, so, you know, at the skin layer for a human being or at the atmosphere for the Earth, wherever you draw your boundary. And look at that thing as a system. And then also, it can be profitable to interpret various subsections of its interior as subsystems. And then look at how the subsystems function either cooperatively together or competitively in these various feedback cycles to constitute trends in the behavior of the overall system. Yeah, I mean, you could you know, look at it in those ways. And I think what you might be talking about at this moment is um, John Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, if I am correct. I think his name was James, but otherwise, yeah. Damn it. Well, I knew it was a J. I didn't want to say J Lovelock, and I was like, it's got to be John. I might be James. wrong, too. I don't know. It's okay. Lovelock is the appropriate uh, last name. But yeah, so um, Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, which is essentially what you had just described you know, that there are all these, and, and, and Lovelock was a, um, you know, he was like an atmospheric scientist, I believe, 
if I am correct, you definitely had like an engineer's background. Um, I don't remember all the, the details. I know he invented things and he uh, was able to make a living off of his ingenious inventions, but none of which I remember right now, but they are important. And um, he was even allowed into the, you know, the academy of sorts in terms of um, not teaching or anything, but like all the other, you know, beneficial things to be part of that most of the academics were part of, like the societies and stuff. I think he was a, a member of the uh, Royal uh, Academy in London or something like that. And that was a rare thing for somebody who's not affiliated with a university. But so because he was on the outside, he was able to kind of think wide, I think, quite uh, quite a bit. And he came up with the high, you know, the Gaia hypothesis, which is that essentially, you know, Earth is an organism or something like that, that it operates more or less like that. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's been a while and I, and I haven't really looked up, looked it up lately, but I don't know if he was just, if he really thinks it's an organism or if he thinks it's just like an, an analogy and that organisms are, you know, interesting in that respect because, Hey, here's this the other thing, the whole entire planet. And it kind of seems to have similar types of properties. Yeah. I couldn't say with confidence either the degree to which he took it literally or thought it was a fruitful analogy. At the very least, the latter, though, right? That he would think or claim things like, we might do well to interpret the Earth as though it has an immune system. Because right. that, what are you allowed to carry across one side of the analogy to another? I think he wanted to bring a lot over from organisms to apply to planets. Or this planet, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think I, at the very least, like you said, it's a good analogy and a good way to take care. Um, certainly, you know, it, when he came up with the idea, there was, you know, there were things that came along later, like Earth Day and whatnot. So yeah, so uh, I guess now then is kind of maybe a good time then now that I've kind of set up the idea that earth is a system, it's got these components, they interact with each other and that there are these kinds of different feedbacks that can happen uh, between the, the different, you know, uh, components that can produce uh, changes in terms of the, you know, the planet itself and that they're all kind of, you know, they all interact and interrelate and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess to some extent you could say very much that they're quite inter interdependent upon one another. Um, and so it, the other thing though, to, to remember about the cycles is that they have, and this is a big one, is that they have, uh, you know, uh, durations upon which say, if we're going to talk about carbon, there's durations upon which carbon is in any of these areas that we, you know, you could call them stores or, you know, uh, reservoirs or whatever. Um, like, so carbon dioxide in the atmosphere stays for a certain amount of time, you know, um, if you were to unitize it to a single molecule or something like that, or something else even larger, like a scoopful, of, you know. Um, and then it stays, carbon stays in, you know, plants and animals in the biosphere or whatnot, or, or the soil or whatnot. It stays in these different areas for a certain period of time before it moves on to another, uh, you know, um, part of the system stays in the surface of the ocean for a certain amount of time or surface 
you know, water on the continents. And then, of course, it stays in the deep ocean for a certain amount of time, on and on. And then the big one is that the longest duration of time that it that it is stored is, you know, you know, in in the rocks, you know, deep in rocks, buried um, and preserved and not allowed to really decay and be able to go back to these other parts of the system. And so it kind of gets, you know, taken away from the almost, you could say, day to day, millennium to millennium style activities. And a lot of these... That, that's where they use the word sequestered, right? Yeah, that excellent word for that. It's sequestered from the, from the shorter uh, lived, or, you know... The shorter, shorter duration cycles into a longer one. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just not part of the, the, the... Whatever that carbon is, wherever it is, it's not part of the normal day-to-day. And that's a bad way to put it, but it's not part of the actual... Uh, it's almost as if it's been removed from the system entirely. It's put away for so long, you know, relative to the durations of other parts of the system. So anyway, I think that's an important thing for one to remember uh, about, you know, about Earth. <laughs> um, so that if one takes a given reservoir and measures its current concentration, that one can make successful, accurate predictions as to the likelihood of that concentration altering over time given our knowledge of its inputs and outputs. Yep. To simplify, you could just say, well, if you don't put any more in to this reservoir, it will empty itself in X amount of time or that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, I mean, there are estimates, you know, at best, because obviously, you know, you're talking about a lot of little things, you know, if you're talking about carbon, you know, uh, carbon uh, elements, atoms, what have you, and their representation in all the various ways that they join with other elements to do other things. But yeah, exactly. So that's that's the idea, and that's part of the whole, the cycles bit. Um, they sometimes use the word persistence time, but, you know, it just depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to an engineer, or you're talking to a scientist, or, you know, or, or a particular type of scientist or something like that. Okay, so that's what these are things that we want to be keeping in mind, right? As we build up to talking about climate and climate change. That yes. Earth can be looked at as a whole system. It has a lot of subsystems. Those subsystems have varying degrees of average time of duration of distribution of carbon. And other things. Why do we, yes. <laughs> yeah, why do we... Should we specifically care about carbon a lot more than others, or and if so, why? Uh, carbon dioxide, and well, obviously that's the that's the big um, what's called a greenhouse gas, and um, and you know we can get to that in a minute, but that's a big co- component of uh, climate change. However much yep. there is in the atmosphere, little or more, you know that kind of thing. Next step. Climate. What is climate? Um, so that's the that's kind We're of. We're glad you asked. <laughs> I know. Uh, I just I was like, why not? The bumper sticker is you know that it's you know average weather or something, but that as a sentence doesn't even make sense. But um, I've got a couple definitions for you, 
and I'll try and be as unboring about it as possible, and I'll be brief. But I'll use two because, you know, they come from my textbooks, and I'm like, eh, why not? Who's going to argue with William F. Rudiman in his textbook, Earth's Climate, Past and Future, Second Edition, which probably anyone studying that or using this textbook, if it's still being, you know, if there's new editions still coming out, uh, people are probably, what, it's probably like the 11th edition, and I'm just... That's just for commercial reasons. (laughs) It's totally for commercial reasons. Um, So he says, or he defines climate as a broad composite of the average condition of a region measured by its temperature, amount of rainfall or snowfall, snow and ice cover, wind direction and strength, as well as other factors. Climate specifically applies to longer-term changes, years and longer, in contrast to the shorter fluctuations that last hours, days, or weeks, and are referred to as weather. And then an R.J. Charlson in a kind of edited volume that was a textbook for a class I had that was called Global Global Biogeochemical Cycles. has uh, the definition that he says, the word climate is used loosely to mean the aggregate of all components of weather averaged over a lengthy period, usually decades, centuries, or longer. And uh, that's pretty much it. You know, he, he, he you know goes on and he's talking about the climate system and stuff, but he almost immediately goes into math, and so I won't do that to people. <laughs> but, you know, there's another definition from a textbook for you. Folks, folk. So what, what is missing or oversimplified in the picture, the description, that weather is the thing they talk about on local news, the thing that human beings are interested in when planning their picnics? Will, <laughs> what will be the air temperature? What will be the pre- precipitation and the wind? If we can only pick three, maybe those three things. And climate is just an aggregate of weather extended over a longer period of time. I I don't think there's anything super wrong with that at all. Um, you know, it's uh, that's that's the, the the basic part of it. I would say the one thing that I always think about with climate is that you know it's a much more stable uh, concept as far as if we were to give it entityhood. You know, um, whereas weather is very chaotic and it changes and, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and everything changes. You know, it's like it's that it's much more um, sensitive to little changes in conditions. That's why it's so hard to predict. Um, Whereas climate, you know, a big part of climate science right now, 2018, and as it has been for quite some time now, is, you know, making predictions. You know, it's a big part of the science of studying climate and climate change is to predict what's going to happen next because it's like a really big weather report, right? So is that what's being predicted when you say we try to use climatological models? Are you predi- you're still predicting weather, right? Isn't weather all we can ever predict? That I think they try to downscale, and I don't know exactly the specifics um because i've never run a general circulation model i just studied them and uh <clears throat> and used you know the the results 
um, of the the models before. But um, as far as you know, the um, gosh, I'm like losing it. Um, what was the th question? <laughs> In part, I was hearkening back to a couple of episodes ago when we talked about emergence. Okay. And again, this could easily be entirely mistaken, mostly mistaken. Is climate something that emerges out of weather? Is weather analogous to the atoms and climate analogous to the pincers of the ants that perhaps emerge out of the distribution of the basal conditions being just what it's like today outside yeah that's a good one i think that's a that's a great question i don't i don't know if i have a great answer for it but what i would say my impression of climate is that it's like um it it just really relies on um you know the the you know the tools of the scientist you know it's a way to say um you know it's a way to talk about averages it's a way to talk about central tendencies you know it's and the and and a and a range and a variance and all that i don't know you know and to talk about it over a, a fairly long period of time you know talk about the climate of you know north america you know or northwestern north america uh, seven million years ago you know what i mean like you talk about that and it's, so you're obviously you're doing a lot of time averaging and so to say that and climate isn't yeah drawing boundaries around various sizes but i think all of it is very much just us trying to understand you know the overall tendencies um of phenomena um as best we can uh, in in taking the information and, and trying to make sense of it. I think that's to me what it's, it is more than a thing itself. Like, I don't know if, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if climate is a thing. I think right. if it, it, it's at it. least at a different ontological category. <clears throat> Here you've got this tiger in these bushes, which is capable of ripping your throat out with those talons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have the concept of the species. Is there such a thing as a the tiger or the so climate is in a different ontological weight class than weather, etc. And one could be perhaps a climate skeptic in the sense of not about global warming, but about well, I don't believe there is such a thing as the climate. I am yeah. only, I'm a weather nominalist and I only believe in weather. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could, um, but if you live long enough, you know, and you have any tendency towards like comparison <laughs> or anything like that, then you'll probably, it'd be hard to stay a weather nominalist, but definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay. We're derailed officially now. All right. Excellent. So what we're, you were defining climate and then we just said that climate is weather extended over a region over time, averaged. Yeah, right. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a way for us to get a, you know, a handle on something that really we can't probably comprehend very well. 
which is large swaths of time, you know. But and it, as usual, we can make that same old analogy that I always like to make of a gas in a box, right? And if you take any little region at any given time, take a snapshot of it, maybe there's a higher concentration than you would expect of molecules of that gas in this subregion, but you can also talk about the pressure of the entirety of this box, and climate is like that. Yep. Yeah, that's how I'd say it. Um, and so when we talk about, because this, this is important to talk about, because this would lead into, you know, like most things related to sort of studying earth as a system and is it, you know, you're, you're looking to the past, you know, as much as anything, because it's, you know, you can't necessarily see the future. You try and predict it. You can see what's going on right now. And maybe we have a little bit of a historical record, but really when I mean, we look to the past, we look to, you know, earth's history, you know? And so there have been, you know, kind of how it's, you know, dichotomized is that earth is in periods of like these ice house periods and then it's in kind of greenhouse periods. And as you can imagine, ice house is when it's it's cold a lot, you know, and greenhouse is when it's oh, it's hot and you're sweating and all that crap. Um and that is basically just, you know, if we want to talk about it, really we're just simply talking about temperature and sort of we're talking about uh what the general average temperatures would be. And, um, and so for instance, uh, to today we are in, even though summer has been really hot and, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson wants you to know that, you know, we're in a, we're, you know, global warming is happening and, you know, climate change is happening and we're in this direction overall, we're still very much in a uh like a like a glacial age an ice age you know and it may not it may not wait, seem like wait, that you're saying we are in an ice age yeah we are in an ice age like a like a i don't know how else i mean we're in an ice house condition on earth now so what does that mean and why do you say so so the idea is that um really all you need to be in an ice house is just you know um standing ice sheets for the most part uh on the planet you know you just need ice sheets that form uh and this is continental types i mean i suppose you could probably start to talk about it being glaciers in the in in you know the alpine you know the mountains and stuff like that but really i think the big one is um ice sheets on land because of the Number one, the fact that the water is no longer now elsewhere. It's all being stored in ice. And number two, um, because ice can have a, an effect, a really big effect, if it's in a really large, you know, if there's a large mass of ice on a on a continent, it can have a huge impact on on the climate of the Earth and other things. So there's, there's a, you know, large uh, influences that it can have. And so... We are today in an ice house, even though um, it sort of doesn't seem like it. Like, hey, what about the mammoths and all that kind of stuff? Um, well, the thing is, is that we've been going through, as far as the data 
tells us, you know, and it's a, it's an aggregate of a lot of different kinds of scientific data, uh, whether it be fossils um, or, you know, studies of ancient soils or, uh, you know, ice core data, um, drilling into the ice and getting, uh, there's little pockets of gas and we can get a, a read on what the, you know, what, you know, what the atmosphere was like when that bubble formed and was preserved in the ice. Also, uh, there's a, you know, the ocean bottom, the seafloor is just completely covered in, uh, what looks like sediment, but it's just little, uh, the, you just say little shells of little protists and other organisms that take carbon and oxygen and all these other elements to create their shells and then they die they drop to the bottom and then more drop to the bottom on them and then they just become this big pile of sediment um so we can study those things and see that you know over time uh you know changes that have occurred we have lots of different techniques for dating and getting ages and so we can constrain their you know the technical term might be you know geochronometer we can constrain when things might have happened based on primarily just our ability to understand isotopes and it's all very physics-y and uh, calculus-y. Um, <clears throat> so we are today in one of these and we keep going back and forth between what's called a, you know, like a glacial period and an interglacial period. And right now we're in an interglacial period um, and of course we're kind of fucking things up uh, with our own like projects, there's something for you there, Ireland. Are are glacial and interglacial periods chapters or types of ice house periods? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say they're subtypes or whatever. Um, it's in part the problem is that we don't have a great um, record of previous ice house periods the way we do today because as time goes on you know, any detailed preservation is likely to have been lost through just, you know, uplift and tectonics and weathering and erosion and all that kind of stuff. So today we have much better, you know, this, the closer it is to today, um, the, the better detail we have, um, in, in more recent, you know, uh, sediments and things like that. Uh, so yeah. Any other questions about this shit? And did you say what constitutes being in an ice house period, simply that there are any large ice sheets anywhere. So the fact that we now have Antarctica as primarily a frozen wasteland is what defines us as being in an ice house. And if we were in a greenhouse, there would be no significant ice on Earth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And of course, the temperatures as well. Um, in any proxies measurements that we're able to get would also indicate that it was, you know, much cooler or whatnot. Um, but yeah, that I think is the primary, uh, unless I'm totally uh, screwing that one up. Um, but even if I'm not, that seems like a pretty good one. Hey, there's this huge amount of ice or there's not, you know? And so if we're going to... So the way that... Scientists, or at least you, <laughs> qualify what it's what Earth is happening right now. We're in an interglacial ice house period. Uh, yeah, okay, you could say you could say that. Yes, um, that sounds fine to me. 
Okay. Um, and then the greenhouse, you know, it's just super warm, you know, and, uh, yeah, I could look up, I got the stuff right here, but let's just keep going. Cause I think we're all right. Um, I don't think that's a, that, that will break that, you know, will break it even if I'm right or wrong. What, can you say real quick, what would super warm be like as far as daytime temperature in America? Average or you know, what does super warm mean? That's a good question. I think super warm because usually we always do things in like Celsius, um, and it would be an average. It wouldn't be like highs or whatever. Um, but I think it also so for one thing it would be um, reduced seasonality, I believe, um, and then um, it would be probably just you know like this summer, I'm sure, just like real hot temperatures. Um, but for longer. Uh, but, you know, again, I don't have the actual, like, specific numbers to throw at you uh, at the moment. That's a good question. I wish I, I, wish I could yeah, okay. thumb through a piece of paper. Yeah. Well, this reduced seasonality thing seems sensible and important. Yeah, I, there's definitely going to be... Uh, less of that um but anyway uh so um i think you're the next thing then is okay so i've talked to you about ice house and greenhouse and we you know going back we have an idea about climate feedback cycles spheres you know components of a system earth itself um so the question then i think when i was mentioning you you had you had said something about okay well but it sounds like carbon is pretty important and I said yeah yeah because of you know how you know in particular carbon dioxide because that is called a greenhouse gas so ice house greenhouse um, but of course it's you know it's not like there's no carbon dioxide during an ice house period um, but the carbon dioxide during a greenhouse period is elevated quite a bit. And, um, you know, they often throw out around numbers like, you know, 400 parts per million or, or more. You know, that's kind of where we are heading or if, well, we're pretty much already in there now. Um, and those and are the that kind means of... a concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, in what part of the atmosphere? Um the part that has the carbon dioxide in it. <laughs> um, I don't know what specific... But, okay, that doesn't matter. ...part sure. of the atmosphere it's in. I don't know why, but, I, you know. Thinking big picture, man. No. Um, <clears throat> so, but the you have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and it has, a, it has particular properties that allow... Um, that, have a, that have a role to play with temperature. And let me try to ask the question that you're like, I'm glad you asked that question. Nice. <laughs> what makes carbon dioxide a greenhouse gas? Are there gases that are not greenhouse? And what makes the difference? So, okay. Yeah. So this is the big one. Um, sure. There are great gases that are not uh, greenhouse, like oxygen. Um, as far as I can tell, the primary ones that, are attributed to being greenhouse gases are like methane and carbon dioxide and uh, nitrous oxide, I believe. 
Um, I don't know for a while there when I was going to school, everybody's all worried about water vapor, but I don't know how worried people are now about that. Um, and essentially, uh, you know, carbon dioxide comes down, I think, to the idea that you have these element cycles or molecular cycles as well, I suppose, as to how long something like methane is in the atmosphere as CH4 or whatever it was. Um, but the CO2 stays a little longer and has, you know, it's a longer persistence time. So I think it's a bit of a bit more of a factor, even though if you put a bunch of methane in the atmosphere, it can be quite a strong greenhouse gas. What makes these things greenhouse gases? As I understand it, it's the configuration of the molecule itself and the way that it is interacting, you know, up in the atmosphere. Light can penetrate through that carbon dioxide greenhouse gas layer. Um, but then light hits the Earth's surface and it's absorbed by the Earth. And then after it's absorbed, um, it, you know, the Earth will radiate heat. And so it, in radiating the heat, the wavelength, wavelength coming in is really small. It's like, and then the wavelength going back out is like, and that's infrared. So you got UV coming in, infrared going out. And infrared gets caught in that layer because the configuration of the gases, it just, it absorbs the, you know, the energy transfers happening in the atmosphere as the waves are moving back up. And so... Uh, in in the act of absorbing that energy, it then itself will then radiate long wave radiation. Some of that goes into the uh, you know, upper atmosphere and probably out into space, and some of it goes back down. So you start this process like the mic hooked up to the uh, you know the amp, and then you've got the speaker, and then it, you make a sound with your guitar through the amp, through the mic, out the speaker. The mic picks up the PA speaker, and then off you go. And it's the same idea that you've got more and more and more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that long wave radiation is absorbed into that layer. That layer then ra radiates that back down to Earth, as well as other places, but the key being down back down to Earth, which then more heat is being transferred back down and being absorbed, and then it's radiating and absorbed, and so you've got this blanket effect which is warm. Kind of like happens in a greenhouse. Holy moly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, okay, let me attempt another irresponsible oversimplifying analogy that I don't even know how much would help because I don't know how many people are familiar with this technological device, nor that we've gone through yet, that I'm currently a hick who lives in the middle of nowhere and deals with plants and animals more often than perhaps you city dwellers do. I have a fair amount of familiarity with the object that we call a minnow trap. I don't know how many other people are, but it's a shape of that you can put metallic mesh into where, let's say, on one end, there's a circle, a circular disc that's maybe 10 inches in diameter that admits swimming small swimming fishes into it then it kind of in a conical shape goes down to perhaps one inch where there's an actual opening 
that admits you into the interior of the trap. So that it's relatively likely, you you know, put some little bait or chum inside there that interests them so they can smell that and they start swimming around. And these little idiots, you know, they're as stupid as molecules, almost. (laughs) And they just swim in various trajectories until one of the trajectories takes them through one of these circular ends that are 10 inches and then they follow the angle down and go through the one inch hole and now they're inside and they eat the tasty treat and are thrilled but then again because they're stupid they can't look around identify the hole the little tiny hole and swim back out instead they just kind of go in a direction i suppose the lucky ones their trajectory takes them right back out the hole but 90 some percent won't and they will bump in to the inside of the cone and be stuck Can I use that as my mental picture of a greenhouse gas molecule? The photon coming from the sun easily goes through it, but only one directionally. Then, after it bounces off the surface of the Earth and tries to go back out into outer space, it's much less likely that it will escape, like a minnow in a minnow trap. All the way up until... The bouncing off. Because if it's just reflected, then it can escape just as easily as it just as easily as, as it went through. And that's why you can stand on the moon and see the Earth and why you can stand on Earth and see the moon. So I think up to that point where you have the light reflect and that's the thing that can't get out, it can. What doesn't have an easy time getting out is the long wave radiation. Is the stuff so that's then it would absorb. be more like the analogy would have to be the biological creature that's getting trapped goes into the trap and eats so much that they get fat <laughs> yeah, and can't get back I out the hole. I think that's it. Yeah, that that's there's perfect. something that happens while they're in there <laughs> that alters their constitution, yeah. and that's what prevents them from escaping. That would sure. be. Per- that's almost where I thought you were going with this too. Initially, I was like. Huh, is there like a lot of like meat in there? <laughs> like, or are they just fast growers? Um, but yeah, that's kind of more, I think, like what it would be. Um, and that is... I don't know if that'll help anyone else, but okay, I think I get the idea. That is global warming. Uh, well, you were, you. I mean, I have foolish, you know, I was so busy trying to focus on the microphone feedback analogy that <laughs> you were like, like a greenhouse. And I'm like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Light comes in from the glass, <laughs> hits the ground. The whole point of the whole calling it a greenhouse gas in the fucking first place. Anyway, I'm focused. So. So you've got that, but that's not all that's, you know, needed. Right. But it's a big part of it. You know, um, there are other factors involved in kind of having a establishing a greenhouse or a nice house. Um, there's, you know, a role for tectonics, um, like, you know, the configuration of the continents, the, uh, you know, carbon dioxide comes naturally from volcanic eruptions. <clears throat> it's the gas that it's a gas that's spit out. Um, and then there's also just mountain building and erosion that occurs uh, as well. And so, um, 
you know, the configuration of the continents is kind of a big one because it helps to understand how the ocean is being, you know, energy that's coming from the sun that is hitting the ocean. How is it being distributed throughout the planet? Because it's, you know, it's a big deal for, for Ireland and for, you know, Great Britain that, you know, you have the circulation patterns in the ocean that we do because of the way that the, the air, like in a, you know, like a wind pattern of sorts, um, you know, hitting off the surface of the ocean will evaporate water and it'll also take energy, you know, from that surface. So the surface, while it is being heated by the direct sunlight, there's also wind blowing across it. And as that happens, it removes a lot of that, that warmth and, 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 and the moisture, you know, creates a more warm, warm, moist air and the the actual surface gets a little bit colder and so there's you know some water that's being affected by this process that's sinking because it's getting more dense because water is densest at like 39 or something degrees cell fahrenheit or whatever uh just before it becomes ice so maybe it's 34 something like that i don't remember the specifics but before, because, you know, ice, water as in the form of ice expands. And so it's a little bit more than, uh, you know, it, than it is at its densest, which is just before it becomes ice. So, and then, so it starts So this to is more about how the different cycles interact, right? Exactly. Water is warm, the wind blows across it and wicks away some of that temperature, which changes temperature of the water, which makes it drop. And then you got the cycles and then the dropping water pulls on the little shell-bearing ocean critters and changes what their life is like and the air is changed it's changed by, and it's you know it's yeah. coming off of the uh you know the north atlantic current and then it falls down and makes ireland soggy you know uh it, it just dumps out there so for instance um rome and chicago are at the same latitude more or less um and they're very different in terms of how we view them, uh, in terms of their, you know, local climates or, you know, the, the, the average weather that happens there. Now there's other factors involved, but it is another, it's an additional one that Europe is, is essentially, you know, allowed to be what it is climate wise, uh, and as livable as it is because of the effects of the way that the circulation, uh, and the interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean as far as those go, those patterns. Um, and you could say to a similar extent, uh, for me living in the Pacific Northwest, it's a similar kind of effect. Um, so there's a role for tectonics, you know, um, and then there's a role as well for orbital cycles, which are also sometimes called Milankovitch cycles after the guy who kind of worked it out mathematically and scientifically. Um, and there's just all these various ways in which the, the planet, you know, has these, um, uh, you know, uh, it's active in certain ways in its orbit around the sun. And it does this in various cycles. So there's one called precession. And that is, if you take a top and you spin it, as it's starting to die down and it's like wobbling all over the place, if you were to think of the way that the if you think, can think of a top as a toy, any kind of spinning toy, I guess you could say, the, the center 
part that cuts right through it. If you were to consider that to be an axis, you know, where there's the little handle for your thumb and your index finger to spin it, um, <clears throat> that you could consider to be like the axis of Earth or something. And you can imagine it wobbling. And it does this wobble over uh, like 20,000 years. And so, you know, it'll complete a cycle in 20,000 years or so. I think it's 23 or something as, as I learned it. And then there's another cycle called obliquity, and that's kind of the tilt of that axis. And so the the planet can be tilted away from the sun in a way, or it could be tilted towards it more if you are, you know, at a certain point in your orbit. Um, I, I don't want to get too confusing, but there is a the way our orbit is, it's not a perfect circle, and um, it's kind of more elliptical, and it's sort of a little offset from the center. And so, for instance, in the summer, uh, we are at what's called aphelion, which is the furthest point from the sun in the Earth's orbit, or any planet's orbit, I suppose. And then in the winter, in the northern hemisphere, um, we're at our closest point to the sun called perihelion. And so we're, you know, we have summer at aphelion, and we have winter at perihelion, and that has a lot to do with, um, well, anyway, I won't get into all that stuff. But that's, you know, if you were to be able to tilt the Earth so that the axis was at a 90-degree angle to the plane of its orbit, then you would be getting a more uniform distribution of the sun, and maybe it wouldn't have as big a deal. We wouldn't have as strong a seasonality, perhaps, um, because the Earth it wouldn't be tilted away. You can imagine facing your head towards a light and if you have your chin t face towards it, maybe the top of your head doesn't get nearly as much light from that lamp or that, that bulb as your chin does. But if you were to actually like turn your head, tilt it towards the, the light so that it was coming at your nose, you'd probably distribute light a lot more over the, you know, your head or face or whatever. So I think those are, that's another cycle. That's about 40,000 year cycle, more or less. And I then won't tell the Catholic Church you're saying any of this. Yeah, don't. Whatever you do, do not. Oh, nice. That was like a little drum roller. Anyway. Um, rim shot. Yeah, rim shot. That's what it is. All right, so you're talking... Let me just ask a... You know, it'll be the, the stupid question. We're talking about the sun a lot. How does yeah. the sun affect climate? Is that the whole deal? Is this all about the way the Earth interacts with the sun and sunlight? It's a huge part of it, yes. I mean, because the sun is what where we get all the, you know, a lot of energy for the surface of the planet. Now, there very may be a lot of energy in the interior of the planet, and that may have a role to play in continental drift, which also would have a role to play in the distribution of any energy that is on the surface of the planet. But the sun is the ultimate in terms of where a lot of it comes from. That's why we even care about greenhouse gases, right? Because yeah. they're interacting with the sunlight. Yeah, well, they're, they're, in, they're not interacting with the sunlight. They're interacting with the results or the products of the sunlight, which is the Earth is absorbing it in terms of, you know, say just, you know, the land. And then it radiates off, which goes up, you know, um, because of due to buoyancy and convection in the atmosphere. And so that air goes up in higher and higher, but 
you know, and it's the the waves, the long wave radiation. You know, like if you were to think of an infra, you know, Predator, the movie where you know the Predator's got this infrared goggles situation where he can see all the you know all the the people because if he had the mask off he couldn't see or whatever. Um, or you know, people often have those night vision goggles. I think I don't know if those are exactly um, infrared, but uh, anyway. But is that why we care about your additional complication here of talking about the way the Earth wobbles on the axis and that sometimes it's closer to the sun and further away and sometimes it's tipped towards it and tipped away? Yeah, and these all have these orbital cycles have a role in 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 climate because of how much yeah sun you can be absorbing, um, and if you're if if you have the the various cycles all acting together, um, they can, you know, produce particular. They can dampen to an extent, or they can kind of what's called you know, in, in if you're thinking in terms of waves, um, the additive effects of waves is called superposition. You can kind of really amplify the effect uh, one way or another. So they have a role to play in climate there. There's a third one, but we don't need to get into it. It's just called eccentricity, and it's much longer. It's time scales, and that's just basically the shape of the orbit. Is it more round or is it more like egg-shaped, you know, kind of in terms of its mm -hmm. elliptical qualities? And then finally, the the other one, which is kind of where we come in, and that's just the role, the anthropogenic role of, uh, you know, you know, you know, Homo sapiens in climate change, and that's kind of a that's probably the the most contentious one that people like to bicker over. You know, is you know, well, yeah, there's climate change, or yeah, there's global warming, or something along those lines. But it's not us who's doing it. It's some natural off-gassing from some cattle somewhere, or whatever the people want to say. Um, well, of course, but the cattle is because of us. But anyway. Um, um, so you're, one of the things that you're agreeing with, right, that is also a trope in the popular media, usually from the climate skeptics who want to stress this point, but I, I mean, this is a thing and we can totally agree with it, right? The climate is always changing. Well, I mean, yeah, everything's changing. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you yeah. know, like, you know, it's not a very good premise. <laughs> You know, because now everything's changing, and now where are you? Yeah, but yes, yes, I, I keep going if you're going to continue. No, just to stress that point, that the there are things that no one claims that humans are affecting. One of the things that we are not currently affecting at our stage of technological sophistication mm. is the orbit of the Earth, or the tilt of the Earth on its axis. Yeah, those are not. Not in any major universal way. factors that we oh we you think we are in a minor way I suppose well just by having babies maybe we change. no I mean just like you know any physicist would be like you know it's just, it's it's minutia but they're like well every last little you know like it's that kind of thing so you have to kind of cut out the you know the extra stuff and be like it's only these things that really matter you know what I mean like I don't know if you know what yeah I mean. in okay. no significant way are we yeah. altering the orbit of the Earth around the sun at this point. Apparently, in a significant way, we are altering the concentration of gases in the atmosphere. Yes. Both through driving cars and 
maintaining herds of cattle and probably many other ways, uh, tilling our fields. We impact the cycles of the concentration of the chemicals by our behavior, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's, you know, it's also major industry, you know, stuff. Uh, you know, obviously we need, we need these, these part of the cycle that we use to power our civilization um, is the one part that is effectively would normally just not really be taking part in it, you know, in the sort of, as I was saying earlier, the day-to-day activities of the carbon cycle or whatever. It's not day-to-day. It's, you know, can be millennium to millennium. But, um, you know, these these parts of the cycle are much more frequently in exchange. And this one, we're actually going to the sequestered part and pulling out and we're adding it, you know, ever so slowly or a lot, fat quickly, whatever, however you want to, Talk about, but we're just continually adding it to that system. So that system is now getting more and more and more and more into the atmosphere in particular. And that is having the big effect on greenhouse gases, which is having an impact on temperatures at the surface of the planet, which then have their own effects on various uh, parts of ecosystems and, um, you know, the physical systems as well, like, you know, increasing the temperature at the surface of the planet will, you know, increase the, the, you know, the expansion of the surface of the ocean, which also contributes to, uh, in addition to the melting of the glaciers, adding water to the ocean. It contributes to the sea level rise and things like that. There are many systems that affect climate. The one that humans affect most and primarily is gas concentrations in the atmosphere is that right yes okay that's the big one and would that be can you even compare these and if so where would it rank amongst the factors or i suppose that probably doesn't even really matter because if something drastically altered the earth's orbit around the sun such that it became significantly close enough it wouldn't matter what our atmosphere was like we would still all burn right Right. or if we put so many gases up into the atmosphere that almost no sunlight could could either enter or not enough of this long wave radiation could escape we'd roast that way so maybe you can't even really compare them because all of them are potentially catastrophic yeah right um yeah, so <clears throat> that kind of... Anyway, yeah, carry on your build-up story here of the... You think you had said the word finally before. I did. I, well, I, was, I was saying that kind of... That would sort of bring us to the point where we are now, you know, we have a good sense for, at least in listening to this episode, you know, you have a good sense for, you know, Earth, it's a system. It has lots of different kinds of interactions and different dynamics, and... Uh, you know, you've got, you know, uh, ways of looking at these systems. We've climate, and we've kind of tried to define that to some extent. And, uh, you know, we have these other categorizations that we use to understand overall the history of the Earth and where are we within that in a context of ice house, greenhouse, etc. Um, and so I wanted to then just talk about some of the roles that these various 
um, factors play, like tectonics and orbital cycles, and then finally sapiens, in the actual, you know, changing of climate or maintaining climate, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, so uh, one of the things that this is, you know, it's, it, it, it's back to earth again you know we're we're in climate but kind of in back to earth we uh geologists have many geologists have argued quite extensively that uh because of the effects that homo sapiens is having on earth you know with obviously the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you know pulling it from the sequestered areas of the cycle and uh you know um the kinds of uh, agricultural practices that we have and their role and f- affecting, you know, chemistry on the surface of the earth, but also in just, just sort of... to, uh, for a second to drill this point home, wink, <laughs> when you're talking about the way we interact with the sequestered carbon, it's that when we extract and utilize fossil fuels, is that what we're yes. now talking about? Yeah. And I, I mentioned it very briefly, I guess earlier. So it probably is good to, drill at home uh i I couldn't have done this without you um so yeah so we have all these various ways uh erosion we have we you know every time we build a new condo complex we're eroding material and it's going into the streams into rivers and we're just pushing it all out we cut down the forests etc sometimes we let them grow back but uh we're you know fucking with the system in many different ways and so what a lot of geologists would like to say is, you know, this is probably going to, if, you know, you know, as, as Noam Chomsky always loves to talk about, if an alien from Mars or whatever, but just say somebody from Mars or wherever came to Earth and they were, you know, they had a good sense for what we would call stratigraphy and things like that. Um, they, we're thinking that the influence we've had on the planet has been great and widespread enough and consistent enough that we would make all these activities would would make a would have a signature in the stratigraphy the rock record and so we kind of want to say well maybe this is a this is a period of time that deserves its own name and so um we now some might say we now live in the anthropocene because prior to that we were living in the holocene and the holocene was this interglacial period that was marked uh, in you know many ways by fossils, but we could also say you know it's kind of at the beginnings of you know things like agriculture potentially and and sort of we really start to move into the periods of time where we begin our civilization, etc. Uh, it also marks the end of the um, you know the, the time of great megafauna, so they've had that extinction event. And uh, prior to that was called the Pleistocene. Some of these things aren't super important. What is important is that we feel strongly enough about the effects that people are having on these systems that we want to give it a new name. You know, so it's even at that level that, um, there, you know, Sapiens has a role to play in, uh, you know, affecting the Earth, etc. cetera. Um, but I think if you, I mean, I'll let you have any comments that you want to make, of course. But otherwise, I think that, Part of it, I, I think we can we can end or whatever. You say Anthropocene, I say Anthropocene. Let's <laughs> call the whole thing hot, hot, hot. Nice. Let's call the whole thing hot. Hmm.
Is that your uh, concluding remarks on that part of it? Indeed. Indeed. Carry on. Science. Um, and so one of the things that I've seen a lot lately is on, like, you know, in the, the Twitter sphere. Is that what they call it or is it the Twitterverse? I might be screwing that one up. I think I've heard both. Twitterverse I've heard for sure. The tweet sphere. Anyway, something I've seen quite a bit is people very um, proudly, uh, you know, throwing out like, this is my, you know, region's uh, climate barcode. And, uh, you know, it basically shows usually from left to right on your screen, uh, you know, this blue, these blue bars, like a barcode on a, you know, like a, like any product that you would buy. I have like literally four in front of me, (laughs) you know, total random, but, um, uh, you know, going from left to right on your screen, it would go from blue to, you know, it would transition into a more red colors and the, the darker, the blue, the colder and the darker, the red, the, the hotter and all that. And of course the trend in all these places is going towards darker and redder and hotter. And so, this is one of those things where I think, okay, so people see that, but what do they, I mean, what do they think that is? You know, I think I have a pretty good sense about what it is, but only because of my education. So like, I get that, okay, yeah, all you really need to know is that it's getting hotter, but like, there's a little bit more, if you just like peeled it back a little bit, you'd see a little more information. And if you peeled that back, you'd see, you know, you could get further into the story rather than just, you know, hashtag me too or you know what i mean like it seems to me like there's always a lot more to the situation that um you know the uh short form media or whatever we call that doesn't just ever bother to get into it's all just super surface and so twitter to me seems you know social media there's not i mean there's only so many characters you can use and people you know provide links and things like that but you know we're just you know, we're like little rabbits now with a super short attention spans. Um, but that barcode thing, as, as far as I can tell, that looks like what would be called an anomaly plot. And that is you're just sort of, you know, squishing something that's sort of two-dimensional down into like one dimension. And um, one of the things I kind of like about that little trivia um, is that it kind of leads into... Um, there was this guy who is sort of the, I don't know what you would call him. He's, you could definitely say, I think he's the first person to kind of sound, not the alarm, because <laughs> apparently he was a, he, he was positive about climate change. He thought it would be great. Or I don't know if he's great was anything he ever said, but he definitely felt positively about it. But he definitely drew a line between temperature changes and carbon dioxide. His name is Guy Callender. And I I don't know a whole lot about his personal life or anything. I don't I think he was British, but if he was French, I don't think he was, but you never know. If he was French, he'd be Guy, I think. But anyway, um and he, you know, all the stuff I told you about global warming. I mean, he lays it all out there, not in any original form, but as a this is what we have a good understanding about this is these are our models about the role of carbon dioxide um 
you know, in, you know, in, in terms of its thermal properties and its capabilities in interaction with light, you know. Um, and so, you know, as I described earlier about global warming and the feedback, positive feedback cycle process, the greenhouse effect that comes of it was actually called, before it was called greenhouse effect, it was called, I believe, it was called the calendar effect by the, after the name of this guy. But he, um, you know, just, it was just, you know, too soon in the infancy of these ideas for the, he didn't like win the day in over, overnight by any means. And he was just an engineer. He wasn't even a, um, you know, he wasn't even like a climate scientist or a meteorologist, which is probably most likely what somebody would have been if they were even remotely interested in something like climate. And uh, he anyway had this, you know, this bunch of data, temperature data, and he collected a lot of data on carbon dioxide. And it was all just, it wasn't data that he went out and collected himself. He just aggregated it from everybody else. So it was kind of a meta type approach to data collection, which people do all the time now. But I think at the time, it was certainly something he was pulling from. Darwin in his Origin of Species is definitely collecting a lot of other people's data to support his idea. And this guy was doing very much the same kind of thing. But for him, it was also very quantitative, lots of models and things like that. And uh, anyway, he has this anomaly plot. And it's essentially all it is is you take an average of whatever the time period you want. I, I, I mean, you could probably have... Uh, premises and a conclusion for an argument as to why you said I'm going to take the average temperatures between you know time t you know sub one to time t sub n or whatever but people do and then once you do that then you basically just um subtract temperatures from that and then you plot them in the sequence in which you know like the year to year to year or whatever uh, or whatever the time sequence it is and you get some that are, you know, there's a zero line, and then you get some that are above and some that are, you know, bars, some in a bar graph. You get some that are above and some that are below this zero line. And that's what this guy pretty much did. And I think a lot of people are, if you take the global, like, planet-wide one or something like that, I'm guessing a lot of people might be using some of his data that he aggregated to put into some of these barcodes. I'm not certain of that, but I wouldn't be surprised because it's pretty much that's the he collected the best data we had at the time. And, you know, he's one of those people where people will refer to his data and probably his ideas and his work without ever really commenting him uh, or, you know, uh, commenting on him. I go through a number of these people's, uh, like my textbooks or this next person I'm going to briefly talk about um, in their papers. And I don't see him, I don't see anyone being like, Guy Calendar was the first to point out or anything like that. But I'm he was certainly uh, important. And he's even been, I think, um, talked about in some more popular books recently. Um, yeah, Twitter doesn't care about this guy. Well, it doesn't, and yet... And I don't know if I do either, but let me attempt to see if I'm totally getting lost or sort of get what you're after here. This is another critique of contemporary media such that it is interested in highly mimetic data visualization methods that work on a chimpy level to support the position that you already wanted to take for non-epistemic reasons. That when an idea becomes as politicized as 
climate change has become in America 21st century. It's more important that you signal your position on the issue to your tribe than that you attempt to say anything with content. So that these people who are posting these blue to red graphical representations of temperature data are not interested in where the data came from, what the individual who accumulated it was like or claimed or thought, but they just want to be able to show to the other climate change activists that they too (laughs) are very concerned about this. Oh, the earth is getting hotter and I care and I want to fix it. Yeah. Do you want to go on a date now? Yeah. That they're interested in totally other things, but they just want to show to the other chimps that they care about climate change. Yes. And I, it, it, it kind of, I think it's just important to just, you know, not leave the actual stuff out. And, you know, I mean, um, I think that, and, and maybe this is another topic for another time, or maybe it's a good topic for right now, but we, we go around and we do stuff. Maybe it's the right topic for right now. There's a guy. I'm going to veer for a second. Are you ready? <laughs> but it's going to be worth it. <laughs> There's a guy who's an economist named Paul Romer, and he's very famous in his own right um, because he created the new growth theory in economics. And his whole thing is basically, um, you know, we can have Star Trek, uh, and he doesn't say this, but. We can have a life like Star Trek because we have technology, because of the way we interact with technology, because of the things that we create with technology. And the big part of the technology thing is really for him is that we can create new instructions as to how to go about doing things. And um, so whoever comes up with the original instructions that everybody then else goes around and copies um, for essentially free... um, kind of they just get lost and forgotten and all that. And I kind of think that it's not the individual themselves that's important. It's the spirit in which they went about doing the work that I think gets lost. And so, as you were saying, it gets replaced by this chimpy beta chimp bullshit. And I personally think that's kind of, we do that to our detriment. And this Paul Romer guy was saying, yeah, we do that to our detriment. So we should invest in education, invest in the guy calendars of the world who are trying to say something and, you know, invest in these kinds of things because they'll always keep pushing us forward and, you know, be a chimp all you want, but we need to, we need to point to the things that are kind of important because they allow us to at least even learn that the things we create might be fucking things up, you know, for us later on down the line. Um, And so anyway, that was, I don't know, I veered, but I just thought that was kind of something else. It's called endogenous technological change. And he has a whole argument with premises and conclusion. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty nice because there's plenty of math and stuff too. But I was like, oh yeah, cool. I saw the, saw premises and conclusion. I'm kind of foreshadowing for some other episode we have eventually. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's one of those things that I just thought, you know, it's the spirit in which somebody like Guy Calendar, um, you know, 
he's being more uh people are remembering him more and more now i think which is good but people who are just putting those barcodes out now it's not all guy calendar's data it's you know recent data too so he's been dead for a long time the paper they put out was like 1938 um uh but you know oh what yeah i didn't catch on to how long ago that was yeah so it was 1938 and by like by the beginning around 1958 this guy david keeling um who was on mono he was a i think he worked for the national ocean and atmospheric association um he um was on the you know the the big island in hawaii uh, and he was at this observatory in mauna loa the the really big uh volcano there and taking measurements of carbon dioxide i'm guessing because you know people like guy calendar pushed it forward along with others i'm sure but and he's the one who if you go to do the al gore <clears throat> um if you go see the first movie i haven't seen the follow-up but if you see the first one uh an, in, an inconvenient truth um, you know, he uses that, there's that curve data that just goes up, you know, very steadily, but it kind of, it goes up and down as it goes up. That's the David Keeling data, the carbon dioxide readings that he took from like the late fifties till, well, they keep taking it. So, um, you can go to the NOAA's website and see the data, but then they'll use his original data. And then it just keeps going from there. Cause other people took up the baton or whatever and kept kept going with it but like you know it'd be like if we look, forgot who david keeling was of course i'm sure you've never heard this person but you know he makes it well enough into the textbooks you know um so anyway um you've got to be a dawdler to be able to care about that stuff that's one of the yeah. problems in my opinion with our current society we're much more tweet sized than book sized yeah for sure i mean and it's just a comment off of that i remember when i first learned that this guy patrick matthew came up with a very very similar idea of basically natural selection like darwin and uh alfred russell wallace after him but i just remember when i first learned that there's this guy and he's got this book called you know naval timber and something and it's like in an abstract in the way back of the book. And he basically kind of outlines more or less natural selection, like years and decades before Darwin. And it's just like, I love that shit. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love that people are, I just, I, you know, what? It's, it's comforting to see that people are thinking, you know, that I am sure he was an aristocrat and his belly was full and he wasn't one of the starving peasants and all that. But it's still comforting to see that, okay, you know. People were doing some good thought, you know, deep thinking back in the day. Even if they did have slaves or whatever that we would consider yeah. to be appalling. Um, appalling. I, All right. For the, wait, Take wait, me back to I, the This topic. is going to be the only oh, this nope. is gonna be the only time I ever do this, but it's not like Harland and I condone slavery and we're like, this is ridiculous and people think it's appalling. <laughs> I just had to say that, okay? We, we, have, we say appalling for other reasons because we're making... Speak for yourself. Yeah. No. That's right. We could have that discussion too. See how popular you become. All right. So, what was your next point going to be? Oh, I was just requesting my expedition head to take me back to climate change mm. from from Twitter 
from all these names that I haven't heard of and where we are now. But I think that you have put together all the pieces that you wanted to establish. For the most part, yeah. Is there a way to wrap them all together and put a bow on it and then move to whatever we talk about next? Um, no, not really. Um, you know, to be honest with you, there, I did have thoughts to be able to, you know, if it went there, I was sort of prepared to talk about, you know, the measurements and the proxies and the general circulation models, but I'm thinking, oh, well, that could get into a major yawn fest for our single listener, potentially our 0.5 listener as well. Um, but you know, in general, you know, we, I do want to just quickly mention that, you know, a lot of the other ways that people think about, you know, the changes on Earth's surface um, that are taking place and that are strongly related to climate and carbon dioxide and temperature and all that, you know, would be, you know, not just the temperatures changing, but, you know, weather patterns changing um, in the Pacific Northwest where I am, even though I'm not from here. Um, I think I've noticed changes. It's more, it's drier you know, um, and that has an effect as well. And it may not be, and I'm not trying to confuse this with any anomaly plot, but it may not be an anomaly necessarily, uh, because it's been pretty consistent. Um, also these sort of major changes in, this is something that Neil deGrasse Tyson would point out or like, you know, the, uh, I, the technical term I would throw out there would be like ecotone changes, migrations, etc. We see those, uh, potentially we, we can see those in the, I don't know, we, hard to say how to, it's not, it, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but the rock record might reveal some of these changes as well, but where like ecosystems are kind of moving north, you know, and, um, you know, obviously the pictures of the glaciers, you know, where you've got like in the early 1900s, these are glaciers in mountainous regions. And then you look at them today, pictures of them today, and there's just like, basically not even there it's like well where did that you know go um the other one that people talk about a lot is increased storm intensity which is a big scary one because of you know hurricanes and you know hurricane sandy or tropical storm sandy i don't remember which it ended up getting called but it pretty much fucked up manhattan even you know i mean it was pretty intense and that really hadn't happened much before you know and it and if it were to happen like you know two or three or four more times in the next 10 years, I'm sure people would be like, oh, fuck. You know, like, is this going to happen so frequently? Do I need to have investment in a dinghy if I live in Manhattan? You know, I mean, uh, so yeah, sea level rise, all that shit. Um, we use the general circulation models to predict these kinds of changes, and we use other kinds of measurements to sort of validate them by collecting the data itself. And uh, we sometimes don't always have access in the past to actual temperatures, but we can use our understanding of physics to come up with ways to um, cleverly uh, coax the, the, you know, the, the basic idea of the temperatures out. And we, you know, that's through some of the processes even that we talked about today. Anyway, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I'm, 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 I'm now kind of like, get the monkey off my back and we can continue on with other stuff, which would be fun or whatever. Well, all right. I don't know where this will go, how it'll go. And I'd like to stress that it's a legal move 
to point out why these are bad questions rather than responding to them. But let's run a pseudo popular media interview with someone who clearly is would never be invited on a popular media show and see how it goes. Right. Okay. So, like, all right. Well, well, you know, welcome, Ryan. Whatever. You know, is uh. So, just tell me straight out. You know, you like to say a lot of big words and talk about studies and historical figures and all the data and all this shit. Well, just tell me straight out. Is the globe warming or not? Yes. <laughs> is this where everyone claps and and stands up and applauds? No, no, not okay. yet. They're just still confused, uh, yeah. right? Okay. Is it human's fault? Yes. Oh, all right. Now, okay, so now we've made a political statement, right? And we got all... Uh, why? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing to cause it? Taking fossil fuels out of the ground. We're using them up. The waste product of carbon dioxide is going to the atmosphere. It's acting like a big old blanket in the atmosphere. Increasing the warming of the planet for reasons of solar uh, radiation coming and hitting the Earth, absorbing on the Earth uh, surface and being radiated up, creating a positive feedback loop, which increases the temperatures on the planet. Done. Why do you hate America? (laughs) (laughs) You sound just like a liberal shill. This is just the standard, like, to me, that sounded a lot like you're just saying what the alarmists are saying. Are they right? Is the quote-unquote left just accurate here? Is Al Gore right? Is this whole, it's human's fault and it's a big deal and it's because we burn too much dinosaur bones? <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's probably as, I mean, I... I would go with that rather than the alternative. I'm not saying the that, alternative being, uh, it's not humans' fault because it's not happening, or you know. Okay. Is it? Should we be alarmed? Is this a big deal? Probably. Is Florida and. L.A. and Manhattan going to be underwater, and if so, when? Um, probably, if we don't do anything about it. Um, I don't know, probably within the next 50 years. That sounds soon enough. It's pretty soon. Is it too late yes. to do something about it? Yes? Ooh, nice. That's a good. That's a good one. Yeah, it's. I think it's too late. I, I mean, we, we can do things to mitigate in general, right? We can always do things to mitigate. Can we reverse this trend? I mean, in the whole, like, anything's possible language, right? When we use that type of way of thinking, then sure, yeah, anything's possible. And, you know, somebody could come up with something that's sequester all the carbon dioxide that we want to be sequestered out of the atmosphere and, you know. But even still, like, you know, uh, there's still that momentum that is, you know, 
happening within all these systems that we talked about earlier. So things are still transferring from prior. You know, there's a lag. There's, you know, it's not it's not always going to be um, an immediate pull-up, you know, like we're just, you know, coming up to the cliff and you're like, pull the horse's reins back. Oh, that was a close one. Um, I don't think it works like that. Uh, yeah. What, uh, what other so questions? It's, <laughs> it's too late to... So what is... The worst case scenario, if we proceed as we have been for the last 20 years, changing virtually nothing in the direction of mitigating or preventing the exacerbation of anthropogenic climate change, what will happen in the next 50 years? Uh, They, you know, based on these... GCMs, these general circulation models, um, and other uh, studies. <laughs> Big word there. Um, you know, they, a lot of the stuff I was telling you about, you know, we have uh, increased drought, uh, likely. Um, ar- areas that are arid, many of them will continue to get even more arid. Um, you know, surface water will, you know, streams will no longer really be running uh, even part of the year if they don't run already part of the year, you know what I mean? Um, and and others will, will change with respect to, you know, that. Um, the transition of where we store water, or where we, where water is stored, so if we've got glaciers in the mountains, if those melt away, um, you know, they still get moved through the rocks, and so... <clears throat> You know, there'll be a period of time where even though there may be no glaciers up on Mount Hood or whatever in the Cascades, you know, there may still be water that we are accessing to a degree in the system because it's still coming down. Um, I don't know ultimately then what happens when you don't have that water as, as much to pull from. <clears throat> um, I talked a little bit ago about increased storm intensity and and whatnot. Um you know, Houston, you know, that I don't think I ever saw anything like that when I was a kid. And I don't think my parents ever saw anything like that. Um, you know what I mean? That's not it's not like you can call in the old days like, oh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> you remember when Houston flooded that bad back in 1849? I don't think anyone does, you know, uh, of course, no one's alive. Who's Anyway, um but you know, sea level rise, yeah, that's gonna have a huge impact. Because I mean, how do you, what do you do to stop it if you want to continue to stay there on the coast? Um, if it is rising, you know, and, and then where do all those people, where do all the people, not the people who are at the coast who have the money, you know, and they're like, yeah, I have my big house right on the ocean. I that beach, that plot of sand's mine, you know. Uh, well, the people who are behind them, where are they gonna go? Because suddenly, are they just going to stay and be like, ha-ha, now it's me? Or is someone like Trump going to come in and be like, get the fuck out, you know? Um, <clears throat> you know, are the billionaires going to do what they want under in, in, in times of crisis? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say. Obviously, you know, having this administration, I know this is very political now, but it doesn't help, <laughs> I guess I would say. I mean, it seems to me like it's not... Not a good one. I kind of call on the um, uh, Peter Turchin, who is a he was a 
population biologist, and then he became a historian, but he's sort of a quantitative historian. He's created a little, his own little discipline called cleodynamics. And, um, you know, he was able to, he studied using a lot of the same kind of stuff with sort of like measurements and, and proxies, because he's trying to get at things that he can't necessarily just go to the historical record and grab, but trying to get a sense for, you know, the welfare of societies. And, you know, he notices cycles in the, you know, in societies in terms of how well they're doing and, and how poorly they can be doing. And, you know, one of the kind of, one of the things he sells at this moment is that, you know, we're, we're definitely moving. We're well, well within the move towards a bad time. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then it'll reverse and we'll maybe head towards better times, hopefully. Um, the thing that's different about this time around is that we do have this climate change stuff. If it is having an effect on things like agriculture and, you know, cause the other thing that comes you know, every day you see new reports, you know, like, well, you know, people are starting to think about like, well, the pests, you know, pests are starting to move further North and maybe malaria and other things that people at certain latitudes haven't necessarily had to deal with before. So then you've got pests in, in crops that maybe the crops just never had them. And we had a, we have a handle on things at the moment, but now we're going to have to definitely adapt and change to deal with that in our society. Um, you know, and it just kind of all these, you know, we've talked a lot earlier about these big picture systems and how we understand them and thinking about the physics and chemistry of the relationships, as well as the, some of the biology. Um, after all, that's the carbon we're putting back up into the atmosphere. Um, it's just, you know, dead plants and stuff. But, you know, I mean, we also have these little things that are happening today, you know, just, you know, the our, our little crops, you know, our corn and our, our wheat, our gluten-free wheat. Um, and so that's going to have an impact. I don't know about impacts that pests might be having on, like, livestock and stuff. Maybe those probably too. Uh, so it just kind of, you know, you just keep going. There was something I was thinking of a second ago, but I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. We went to commercial five minutes ago. <laughs> I know, I'm just like, yeah. You're not allowed to give answers like that. I was wondering if the epidemiological aspects would come up, because that's something that concerns me about this. And then just the general point about the more closely interrelated and the more complex your systems become in the sense that minor changes in the initial conditions can easily blow up into drastic right. shifts in yes. subsequent evolution of the system, people will sometimes, in, you know, again, the media, the bias, the political, the bullshit folks, will say, yeah, whatever, change one degree Fahrenheit in 50 years. As though that's dismissive, and it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? I, th well, I think, but again, I'm the ignorant one, so you can confirm for me. That can be a BFD. Right? Yeah, that's a big fucking deal. Like Huge. you can't just one degree doesn't sound like anything, perhaps intuitively to a Twitter viewer, uh, but no, like that can change a lot of important things. Yeah, that changes. Yeah, I mean that changes so much, and I think you know, you know, they're the fact that they're talking about changing even, you know, that that temperatures could change even more than that. Um, 
is is pretty it's intense i don't know what's ultimately you know and we may not be alive to see it but certainly i don't know what's ultimately going to be the case um hopefully there's some ideas out there that people might be thinking up that are just like oh yeah that's totally a way to stop this or solve that problem or deal with this issue um because otherwise it's just sort of like well i don't know my my biggest like the biggest worry anyone would normally have i think is that um you know you just be doing a little like little patches on problems not without really kind of like addressing the systemic issues at hand you know um and so that seems to me like the biggest thing that one might not want to fall into you know if you have an opinion on this question, name between one and three large-scale behavioristic changes that humanity could engage in to mitigate the detrimental effects of climate change on human society and our goals. Yeah, um... I don't know. I'm going to start with one and hopefully I can come up with two other ones or ones that I've thought of or, or have learned. Um, I remember my, I have a, um, I have a cousin, my mother's first cousin. So I guess it makes him a second cousin. I don't, I don't know. And he um, was an economist, but he was an economist who dealt with environmental problems. Um, and uh, he was a, professor and all that business emeritus now i guess and um i remember when i was doing my teaching assistantship i uh thought of like because there are all these alternative ways to you know power you know stuff you know your house or whatever right and um you know one of the things i see in oregon and you know throughout a lot of the western states that I've driven through are like, you know, big windmills, you know? Um, and apparently, uh, I signed us up for getting most of our electric power from windmills. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there, but it's just a factoid. Um, but, uh, I asked, I, I thought I was like, you know, when, what would happen if you used all the, the alternatives, so, like, if you had, like, your house and, you know, um, you had, like, a windmill at the top and you had a bunch of, like, solar panels and, like, you had other ways to, like, you know, get power from, uh, you know, the earth or whatever using alternative means besides relying on something like fossil fuels or whatever. And he immediately, like, sent me a paper <laughs> that, like, this ecologist and economist wrote about like ways to use alternative stuff and just like they called it wedges i don't know why they called it wedges you can probably look it up i think it was a paper in like science like one of the big ones um but uh anyway i just thought of that and i was like yeah that could be a i don't know how viable a solution it is but it is like well if you know you can't get a lot out of one what if you tried them all you know i don't know if that's um that would be a ton of work or not um, and certainly having everybody, it's like the whole recycle thing. It's like, well, if we all just recycled and it's like, well, what if, you know, we had, you know, 
a system set up to deal with recycling in a way that didn't rely on everybody to do it themselves each day in and day out. And, you know, which is fine, but, you know, cultures are not, I don't trust cultures to do that forever. You know what I mean? So anyway, um, so anyway, it's just one of those things. Uh, so that was one kind of solution that I remember I'd thought of. I don't think it was great solution by any means, but perhaps it could be something. Um, and I think that <clears throat> there are people who have tried to use waste in like places like Germany or whatever, places that are like super hyper progressive and like, yes, let's do this cool new thing and make it work for our cities and towns. Um, but they were using uh, waste like garbage and they created these huge plants and these processing centers that then extract the, the methane that is, you know, the bacteria and stuff that are, you know, decomposing all that trash. And they you take the methane and they use that as their fossil fuel or whatever. Um, it's not a fossil fuel, but it's like, you know, the same idea, you know, to be able to power as a sort of a natural gas to power some stuff. I don't know if they power all their, everything with it, but that's one way is to just kind of, you know, take the basic idea of what you're doing and just get it in a different way, you know? So you're not taking from the cycle of place, you know, stuff that's buried or whatever. And then a third one would be just stop being a society. No. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't know what the third one would be. Now we're talking. <laughs> just, you remember at the end of Escape from L.A.? Did you ever see that? Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. Uh, not the Escape from New York, but the Escape from L.A. And he has this whole, like, somehow he gets a hold of the power button. And he's like, turns society off or whatever. <laughs> Takes a drag from his tipperillo and just marches off. No, that would be an option. And that might slow things down. Uh, but yeah. We finally moved from Obama liberalism to anarcho-primitivism <laughs> and got a little more radical. Let's do it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. So, there's that. When us Bill Maher watcher level climate change engagers do what we do, we hear a whole bunch about the International Panel for Climate Change report in 2011 or whatever it was. Uh -huh. Should we? Should that be as big a deal as it is? Should we give a shit? What did it, What's the basics of what it said? And should we care? As far as I, I haven't read any of the latest ones, um, but I, I think the basic move they do is they provide, I mean, they do, you know, basic reports on the state of the situation and all that, but then they talk about, um, you know, all your options, you know, you know, various scenarios, like if we cut back emissions by this much, or if we, you know what I mean? Like if we, you know, if we do all these various things or if we do nothing, you know, and so you have essentially multiple working hypotheses or scenarios of whatnot. And that's kind of the primary thing that I think they tend to provide. Now that doesn't mean that people in the overall large, the, the overall community at large don't often say, ah, that's not right. Or we, you know, whatever as scientists would, right. They bicker about certain things and, Maybe some people are biased in particular ways who are on the, you know, the assessment panel for the IPCC, which is, by the way, uh, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, 
<clears throat> it's one of those things that I think that's the main purpose that they serve is to show you various, I mean, not main, but it's a big one that people tend to talk to talk about a lot is that they provide you all the various scenarios given, you know, different emissions scenario, you know, amounts or whatever. Um, even the, if we stop entirely, you know, if we let Kurt Russell push the button or whatever, <laughs> like what would happen? Um, so that's kind of what they tend to do. Um, uh, but again, I, again, I, you know, it's been a while since I've read their reports. I imagine they're not much different than the ones that I have read. Freeman Dyson tells me if we change our farming practices, we can fix all of this. That, sure, climate change is happening. Humans probably have an effect on it. We ought view that warming climate as an opportunity for bioengineering. We will now be able to grow more crops in more places than we were before. And there are common sense alterations we can make to minimize the negative effects while taking advantage of the positive. For example, instead of growing corn to feed to our cows, we can use that real estate intelligently as grazing land and just move the fences around and let them eat the grass because um, tilling and doing standard farming where you open up the black dirt and then plant the seeds into it and then again in the fall harvest all and then have all this dead material and release all the carbon into the atmosphere or whatever. If we, that's one of the worst things you can do, I'm told is making black soil rather than letting it be native grasses that are then grazed upon by cattle. Is there some combination of these sorts of things? Doing intelligent, scientifically backed practices of... What do they call it? Being good stewards um, when you use things responsibly, sustainably in the right way. Conservationists or something. Could we actually take advantage of a warming climate to be to have access to simply more energy to turn the earth into a greater Eden than it otherwise would be? Well, I mean I'm I'm not I well first off, I don't know. You can't I don't think one can straight face say that climate change is going to produce all bad things like that that's all it's going to do is create bad things um i don't know how many good ones there are and you know relative to the bad you know that have been listed out in this episode so far um you know i the the issue here is that it's the same issue with everything else and that is, I guess, in some ways, it's it's politico economic or whatever. In that, you know, well, that's great, but why can't we also get like, you know, solar off the ground and in the ways that would be amazing? Because wouldn't wouldn't that seem to be the thing we'd want to do? Is just you know power our civilization with the sun, you know, like, which is another thing Freeman Dyson talks about. 
you know, which would seem to me like the thing we might want to do. I don't know if we can get to powering our civilization with the sun using solar panels um, faster or slower than some of these other practices that he might talk about us trying out. Of course, you know, now they've all become sort of practices that he's talking about. Maybe do all of them like I was talking about before, like, you know, just try them all, you know, <laughs> like try and take yeah. advantage of the warming while you're also trying to figure out how to like maybe mitigate it or have some degree of, you know, slowing it down. One would think that if you can, this is what I say to my son all the time. He, um, he'll make a big, big ass fucking mess in the house. And I'll say, yeah, well, it's time to pick it up. And he's like, do I have to do it all by myself? Like, I don't know where he gets teamwork. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you made cool. the mess by yourself. Can't you figure this shit out? Do you not remember where you pulled that thing from? And it's kind of like, that's like where we're at or whatever. Like, we're like, do I have to do this all by myself? And it's like, yeah, come on. You can't, you can figure out how to like. Can't come- God help a little bit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What a lazy asshole. God, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's like we could combust in an engine. Why can't we like sequester in a whatever, something? <clears throat> why can't we get the sun to work for us? Why is it only in the one direction? And that means to me, like somebody's vested interest is involved or something. So my, that would be my only thinking is that, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, Freeman, but you know, we got to like get past the same old twats that, you know, it, like nothing's changed in that regard. The lobbyists are still lobbying hard for same, you know, business as usual. And so, yeah, I'm, right. I mean, all right. So I'm personally, again, super ignorant, don't really care. But it seems <laughs> obvious to me that we should be doing quote unquote renewable energy stuff solar, wind, water, whatever. Yeah. The, all these sources of extractable and storable energy, we should be doing those. And anytime. Just as a general orientation, whenever money is the primary reason to do it in the way that we do it rather than another way, I'm opposed. (laughs) Yeah, right. And that's the only reason I can think. Institutional inertia and economic uh, vested interest and efficiency that we would bother to cook dinosaurs rather than yeah harvest sunlight it just seems foolish to me i don't i mean yeah it's dumb that's an obvious one <laughs> yeah i think it's an obvious one and i think it's probably as simple as psychology you know psychological biases would have it you know um yeah like in in our twitter feed uh for the doddlers i saw something today where it was like talking about how even smart people can be you know you know can clutch to ideas and in some ways it's worse because they can like justify and rationalize their way to like keep a stupid thing you know or whatever yeah they use their intelligence for the nefarious purpose of justifying their bullshit exactly said very well so i i kind of think that like I don't see why it's not anything more than that. 
you know, or it has to be anything more than that. Using Occam's razor in this case, it's just, I, I make money. I don't want to learn anything new. And I don't want to have to, I'll put all, like, put all my effort into, I'll sink all of my effort into this one thing because it's familiar or because it seems easier than something unfamiliar or whatever, you know? Um, and that, that just is all too human. Too human. Indeed. So, all right. I'm wondering. I'm going to do an attempted summary and then check if, to what extent, I'm mistaken. Okay. I almost feel vindicated not paying attention to or caring about this topic. <laughs> because from what I've heard tonight from our putatively unbiased and respectable source, very well accords with the picture that I have extracted from my admittedly poor engagement with these ideas. Number one, climate change is happening. Number two, it's significantly, though not entirely, humanity's fault. Number three, we've ignored it so long that it's probably too late to avoid significant difficulties, though not too late to salvage, obviously, Earth. I mean, the Earth will be fine but to salvage even humanity's existence. But we're probably going to have to pay some significant costs for the way that we've behaved over the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. It sounds basically like the Bill Maher liberals or whatever are right. That anthropogenic climate change is happening and we it's too late you know we've done a lot of bad shit and it's too late to totally avoid consequences we should try we should build more windmills um i don't know i'm not summarizing well but it's fine that's basically what i'm getting from ryan tonight is that wrong uh no i don't think it's wrong um but I don't think – I would like to think that what I gave you, even though you may have ended up in the same place, <clears throat> you aren't the same Harland in that place anymore. How does that feel? Oh, I yeah, agreed. I'm just saying that when you attempt to be epistemically responsible, uh-huh. you can – In a complicated world where there's a lot of ideas to consider and there's a lot of people throwing stuff at you, it seems good to me to realize the places where you have bothered to dig deep enough and think enough and consider the arguments, make some of your own, and have a considered position. That's So on those scores, I feel I have improved after this engagement. Mm Mm-hmm. But then there's also just the end product that while you're walking around and behaving, for example, voting, not that I do that, 
when you go do stuff and engage in the world, you're operating on wherever your current opinions lie. And I'm saying that I don't think I've been requested or required to change any of my opinions, but I have better reasoning behind them now. So that's good and great. Yeah. It's just interesting to me that the position that it seems like the Dawdler's philosophy has arrived at at this episode is very similar to one of the standard media positions that Neil deGrasse Tyson types would be out there making. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think so. And that's why no one's like, I don't think anyone in the climate community is like, shut up, Neil. (laughs) They're like, okay, good. You know, or he probably has friends who are climate scientists and has these conversations over wine. Because I think he likes wine. That's what I've seen him say in interviews. Um, yeah, that seems to be, to me, the position. But, <clears throat> again, all you one and maybe point five listeners out there, what you get here is the long-form version of that. Uh, however good or bad it is. Um, but anyway... Um, you know, we're we're happening upon that normal time when we uh, say goodbye and shed a tear for the world, which is over the edge of parts per million, and we're fucked. <laughs>